John chapter 17, the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. We're going to be focusing in um, on the first five verses of this chapter this evening. It's the first of three sermons on this, this great prayer of our Lord. Um, I think we'll read the whole chapter, though. I think that would be, be helpful. So I'm going to read from verse 1 through to the end. So John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know them in truth, uh, to know in truth rather that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Um, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the, the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with them where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you loved, uh, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, that, uh, these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love um, which, with, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
It's a glorious prayer, isn't it? Um, it really is. Um, first, by way of apology, I've changed the outline slightly, so what's on the back of the notice sheet, I'm afraid, is slightly out of date. But I think you'll be pleased to know that I've reduced the number of points, not added extra ones, so uh, I'm sure that's a blessing. Uh, so then we're looking at John chapter 17, and uh, verses 1 to 5. And we begin this evening with a question. What is God's plan for this world? And what is his purpose for me and you? Well, two questions. John 17, this great majestic prayer of our Savior, gets us right to the heart of these questions. Um, they're, they're very important questions. If we want to understand what we're about as a church and as individuals, we need to know what God's plan is for this world and for us. And so then, as we come to John 17, we find Jesus face-to-face with his darkest day. It's Thursday night. He's eaten the final Passover meal with his disciples. He's told them he's going away. In chapters 13 to 16, he's been preparing them for after he's gone back to the Father, and we've been studying those chapters in, in recent weeks. And now, and now, they head towards the garden, and in the garden, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his closest followers, there he will be arrested and tied up. He will soon be abandoned and, and, and denied by his remaining followers. And he will find himself alone, facing trumped-up charges before the Jewish court and before the Romans, beaten and scourged and tormented and mocked. And he will go to a cross and be crucified and suffer there the wrath of God the Father. That's what's in front of him right now. And what does he do? Facing all of this, he prays. And we're able to listen into this prayer because John, the Apostle John, has recorded it for us in this gospel, in his gospel. And what a prayer it is. I don't know that we'll do much more than scratch the surface. It's deep and it's glorious. But nevertheless, we are given the extraordinary privilege of listening in as the eternal Son of God talks to God the Father. And as he talks, he prays firstly for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers who are to come, including us. And as he does so, he's praying that God will complete his mission in this world, firstly through Jesus and then through his people. So then, as we listen into the, the first part of this prayer, what do we learn about God's plan for the world and our part of it? Just what is Jesus all about? Well, as he prays, he gets straight to the heart of the matter, so let's do the same. Looking then at the first five verses, you will see the word glory, or glorify, or glorified. These various forms are there five times. Look particularly at verse 1. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Or look at verse 4. I glorified you on the earth. Um, glory, and the glory of God, is absolutely central to this prayer. And my first point then is this, the first point we're going to look at, and we're going to kind of build up a sentence. The first one is this, Jesus prays 
that the Father and the Son will be glorified. Jesus prays that he will be glorified and the Father will be glorified. Just pause here a moment. What do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? And what does it mean to glorify God? A helpful way, I think, to think about the glory of God is that it is the display or the the shining out, if you like, of everything that God is. In other words, it's his name, it's his reputation, it's its power, it's his knowledge, his justice, his mercy, his love, and so on, on display. God's glory is all of God's attributes, all that God is on show. And God is truly, extraordinarily glorious. So that's God's glory. What does it mean then to glorify God? Surely that's complicated. Surely that's a bit problematic because we can't make God any more glorious than he already is because he is perfect in every respect. Well, it's this. To glorify God is to proclaim and to make known his glory. And if we are to glorify God, then we are making known his glory, his perfection, his attributes, his beauty, his wonder in the world. It's to lift up his name and his honor and his reputation so that others see it. And that's what Jesus is praying for, the glory of God the Son for himself, for his glory, and for the glory of God the Father. I think by way of example of the, the, the athletes who've just competed and won medals in uh, the Winter Olympics just, just a few weeks back, we might think perhaps of um, uh, Lizzie Arnold, and, and here she is, she's going down the skeleton run headfirst at 70 miles an hour, and uh, she's slightly crazy, I think, going, doing that, but she, somehow she's the best, and she's the fastest, and she's the most talented and she's the best trained, and she goes down and she wins, and she gets the gold medal for Great Britain, and she is brilliant. There's nothing that we do to make her any more or any less brilliant. She just is, and she's won. But then they take her, and they put her on a podium in front of the watching world, and they give her a gold medal, and we're watching on TV, and, and, and someone's on the internet, and they're reading about it, and it's in the papers the next day, and on the radio, and people are looking at it on their phones, and they're talking about it at work. You see, she is extraordinarily brilliant at the skeleton. But when we spread it around the world, her glory, her brilliance is seen, and it's like that with God. He is extraordinarily glorious, but Jesus prays that that glory may be seen and known and understood. That's what it means to glorify God. People see his glory and they praise him. And of course, these athletes are great at one or two things, perhaps very good at some others, perhaps not so good at certain other things. But everything about God is worth proclaiming and sharing and lifting up. And Jesus then prays for the glory of God that his name might be acknowledged and honored by everyone, for the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. So if you're a Christian believer here this evening, what would you say that your Christian faith is all about, first of all? Someone perhaps might say it's about living a godly life. Someone says it's about loving others. Someone else it says, well, it's about finding peace or fulfillment or satisfaction. 
we might also ask, well, what is church about? What is Chalmers Church about? What should it be about? And, and, and perhaps you think maybe it should be all about friendship or community or, or caring for those in need. Now, all of these things are great things. They're important things. But fundamentally, God is at work in this world to bring glory to himself. That's what Jesus prays for. And that is why Jesus came. And that is the mission that Jesus is fulfilling and that we are called to fulfill, to bring glory to the Father and the Son, to bring glory to God. Is that what your life's about? Is that what every breath of your day is about? Is that what your Christian service and worship is about? It needs to be. It must be. And what about Chalmers Church? Is that what we're about? Do we exist and work and worship and live for the glory of God, first of all? Because that is God's great mission in this world. Jesus prays that, that the Father and the Son will be glorified. But there's someone here, and, and perhaps you're a little bit uncomfortable with this. You, 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 you find this talk about the glory of God being the main thing as, as kind of difficult, quite hard for you. Um, surely, well, the gospel, it's all about love for people, isn't it? All of this talk about the glory of God, well, it, it kind of makes God seem somewhat distant and harsh. How is a God whose mission in this world is to bring glory and honor to himself good news for me? Doesn't this almost paint God as in somehow selfish or tyrannical? How, how, how do I understand this? I'm not sure, you know? Now, of course, we must say that God is God. He is glorious beyond our comprehension. He is the great creator. He is the eternal one. He made this universe for his glory, and therefore he is worthy of all glory. But actually, we can say a great deal more than that, as our verses make clear. And the answer is in just who God is. Verse 1, look at just this verse a little bit more closely. It says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus prays that the Father will glorify Him, the Son, and by glorifying the Son, the Father is glorified. So there's a sort of mutual thing going on here. The Father lifts up the Son, and the Son, by being lifted up and being glorified and exalted, brings glory to the Father. And the key here is that God is Trinity. God is a Trinity. He's one God, one being in three persons. That's the teaching we know, isn't it? And that's crucially important. Um, in our understanding of him. He has always been so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you read verse 5, we're reminded that the Father and the Son shared glory in heaven together before the world existed. And, and later on in the prayer, we can read verses which remind us of the great eternal love that there was and there is between the Father and the Son that has always been there. God the Father and the Son have eternally been loving one another and enjoying one another and rejoicing in one another. That is the nature of God. God was never lonely. God has never been harsh or selfish. God is in his very nature a God of love. He's always been so. He's always been a relational God, a giving God. 
And in this prayer, what we see going on is that wonderful interaction between father and son. As the father, as the son prays for the father to bring him glory, to lift him up. And the son, when he's lifted up and glorified, brings glory back to the father. They delight to bring glory to one another. The son delights to bring the father glory. Jesus prays, glorify me so that you may be glorified. The Father delights to glorify the Son, and the Son delights to lift up the Father. Now, the staggering thing with this is, it doesn't take place up there in heaven. It's not that we're called to sort of strain our necks and peer into the distance to see if we can see and grasp something of God. No, it's happening down here on the earth. Here is Jesus, and here he is praying and as, as he faces a, a, his great day of trial and, and glory. Here he is praying on earth, and he's a man. God the Son has become man. He's taken on flesh. He's lived life on this earth. His great glory, if you like, has been veiled And here he is being hungry, and here he is being tired, and here he is living in poverty. Here he is being rejected and mocked. Here he is being misunderstood. Here he is feeling rejection as people walk away from him. Why does he do that? To bring glory to the Father as he is glorified. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth, and uh, that's true. He's been um, uh, bringing glory to the Father and to himself right throughout his life. Uh, we, we can go back to the early in John's Gospel, and here he is turning water into wine. And, 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 and here he is healing the blind and the sick. And, and, and here he is raising Lazarus from the dead, bringing glory to himself and also glory to God the Father. And here he is teaching extraordinary truths about God. And as he has done so, he's shown us the Father. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. But as Jesus prays, the great event, which is to bring the greatest glory to God, is still to come. The great day is looming and it's almost here. Just what does Jesus mean when he prays in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son. And we do need to think about that carefully because in verse 5, he, he, he seems to be praying and is praying for a return to glory, a return to heaven, a, a return to the glory he had before the foundation of the world. Uh, he, he prays here, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So yes, he is looking forward. He has told his disciples, I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father, and I'll go to prepare a place for you. They know he's leaving. We, we, it's clear he's leaving. He clearly wants to go back and, and leave the, the humiliation he's suffered in this world. And, he, and when he prays, Father, glorify me, in verse 5, that's what he's looking forward to. But the key thing is, the path there is the cross. And when we see him praying in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son, he means through the cross. Because the cross is the event that brings the greatest glory to God in all of history.
So firstly, Jesus prays that the Father and the Son will be glorified. But secondly, Jesus prays that the Father and the Son will be glorified through the cross, through the cross. The cross is the hour that Jesus talks about in verse 1. Robin was pointing to that earlier. He says, Father, the hour has come. And we've been building up to this hour right through Jesus' life. I think we, 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 get, we get this concept because in our own lives, we spend an awful lot of time looking forward to things, don't we? Whether positively or, or negatively. We look forward to weddings. We look forward to, to births. We are looking forward to exams and interviews and deadlines and holidays, retirement, all, all sorts of things. But, but many of these things are quite big for us. They're quite involved. And as we head towards them, everything seems to sort of get more intense. So perhaps there's someone here who has got married recently or you're going to be getting married. And um, you, you, know, you get engaged and you roughly set a date. It's going to be about a year or so away, perhaps. And you do a few basic things. Maybe you find a wedding venue and make sure the church is free and there's someone there to take the wedding. Uh, but at the beginning, I, I don't know, it, to me it looks like this anyway, I've never done it right, but it looks to me, it looks to me like the progress is fairly gentle and you kind of tick along and every so often you do something. But as time goes on and the date gets closer and closer, it gets more intense and you find yourself having to do more planning and more sorting and, and more organizing and there's so many things to chase around and sort out. There's invitations and there's cars and there's flowers and there's food and there's so much stuff and it gets bigger and bigger so that towards the end it feels like this is your life and Everything is pointing towards that day. I guess there's something of the same in uh, the Gospels. You see, because um, right throughout John's Gospel, we, we see references to Jesus' hour. It was always where he was heading for. In the first half of John's Gospel, we, we notice a number of times that, 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 that John tells us that Jesus' hour has not yet come. For example, in um, chapter 8, um, Jesus is in the temple, and he's saying fairly extraordinary things about himself, and he's criticizing the Pharisees, and they're pretty cross with him. And I'm sure at that point, if they could have done away with him, there and then they would have done. But John says this, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 12, suddenly everything changes. Some Greeks come, and they say, we'd like to see Jesus. And, and in response, Jesus makes this extraordinary statement. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what is this hour? Well, he goes on, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And just a little bit later in the chapter, he says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, Jesus, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the hour is Jesus' death. It's Jesus' lifting up. It's the cross. Jesus is to be crucified tomorrow. That's the timing of the prayer, isn't it? And this is the great event when God will be most glorified. 
All of Jesus' life has been looking forward to this. Indeed, all of history has been building up to this. Right from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everything has been building up to this. And in God's divine plan, it was always there. Everything is anticipating and building up and working forward to this very day. And here is Jesus praying on Thursday night, and it's tomorrow. And here we are. All of history points to the cross. Why? Because in the cross... God fulfills his divine plan to glorify the Father and the Son, to glorify God, to glorify himself through the death of Jesus. And so, this great event comes. The event in all of history that brings the most glory to God, staggeringly, is when his Son dies in agony. The darkest day in all of history is therefore the brightest day. The greatest suffering the world has ever known brings the greatest glory. The day of greatest despair turns out to be the day of greatest hope. I asked you earlier if your faith is all about the glory of God. If that is so, then it will also be centered on the cross because God glorifies himself through the cross. No other faith can bring glory to God other than a cross-shaped one. When you talk to your family and your friends about the fact you're a Christian, what do you talk about? Do you tell them that Jesus gives you a more fulfilled life? Do you tell them that he gives you peace? Do you tell them that he gives you freedom from guilt? that he brings you into a community, that he gives you brothers and sisters, that he gives you answers to prayer. These are all great things and they're all true and please do tell your friends and your family about them. They're wonderful. But first of all and most of all, take them to the cross. Tell them about a saviour who suffered and died in your place because it's in, only in the cross of Christ that there is hope. And it's only in the cross of Christ, or it's most of all in the cross of Christ, rather, that God is glorified. Do you ever find yourself in church wishing that the preacher could move on from all this talking about suffering and death? Even at Easter, it gets a bit much for you, blood and judgment. And Can't we have something more practical? Can't we have some more teaching about how to bring up my family or, or how to be a better member of society? And, and what, those things are good, and the Bible has much to say about them. But we never move on from the cross, because in the cross, the glory of God is more wonderfully and perfectly seen than it is anywhere else. God is glorified in the cross. Never move on from the cross. Never move on, and never stop talking about it. This is where God is glorified. And isn't that an extraordinary thing? Almighty, eternal God, glorified as his son, suffers and dies in shame and pain and suffering as the wrath of God the Father is poured out on the son. But that's the truth. That's what it is. But why? What is God's purpose in all of this? Because if we weren't so familiar with God's word, it would seem very strange, wouldn't it? And perhaps this does seem strange to some people here. Why does God bring glory to himself and to his son in such a horrible, gruesome, terrible way? 
Look back at uh, verse 1 and verse uh, 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 2. Father, glorify the Son that he may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what is this purpose? Well, it's a staggering one. The purpose for God sending Jesus to the cross is to give eternal life to sinful human beings. The thing that ultimately brings the most glory to God is the cross. And why is it the cross? It's because it brings us eternal life. And so we see at the cross that this eternally loving God reaches down and his love is extended to us. So Jesus prays that the Father and the Son will be glorified through the cross, which brings eternal life. We once lived for our own glory and didn't think about God, but Jesus suffered and died to give eternal life to people like us. Here we see now just how far from the truth it is to say that God is harsh or distant or unloving or selfish because not only is he this great eternally loving God delighting the Father and the Son delighting in one another but we see that love brought down to earth in Jesus dying on the cross but not only that we see that that extends this extraordinary love out to us giving us eternal life if we come and trust in But here we're going to ask two questions to help us understand this a bit more. Two questions. Firstly, who gets this eternal life? Who is this eternal life for? Look at verse 2 again. Since you, that's the Father, have given him, that's Jesus, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom? To all whom you have given him. All whom you have given him. This eternal life, then, is is for those whom the Father gave to the Son, before the world was made. And here's a staggering truth. Try and get your head around this if you can. If you're a Christian here today, in eternity past, before this world existed, you were not only chosen, but you were a gift, a gift of love from God the Father to God the Son. That's the truth. And what kind of gift? An extraordinary gift, really. I guess um, we give gifts from time to time. I gave some to a friend yesterday, and uh, I would suggest to you that by the end of the week, um, most of them will have been eaten, and the other one at some point is going to disappear into a drawer somewhere, and and probably that's a good thing. Um, And I guess a lot of gifts are like that. They're great for a few days. They're great for a few months. But every so often, a gift comes along, And it's a very precious thing. Maybe it's a painting or an ornament or a piece of furniture. And and it's very beautiful and valuable to you. And you put it on the wall. You display it prominently in your house. And you show it to the people who come around. And and that's going to be there after you're gone. After you've gone, it's going to carry on in the family. And and maybe you've got some things that were given as gifts back in generations past in your family. And you still treasure them. They're going to stay there forever. And this is more of the nature of of gift that we are. Us sinful, rebellious human beings. These people that God 
has given, God the Father has given to God the Son. We were given in eternity past, and then Jesus in time, 2,000 years ago, came and died to pay the price to redeem us, to keep us. So I wonder if there's anyone here who's struggling today. You're struggling to keep going as a Christian. It's really tough for you right now. There's discouragement and pain and temptation and confusion and doubt. And you wonder if you're going to keep going. You wonder if you're going to make it to the end. You wonder if you're ever going to get to heaven, whether you mightn't just walk away and you feel like you're holding on with your fingertips to faith. Come and see this truth. You were chosen. You were given by the Father to the Son before the world was made. Why? So that He might, the Son might come and earn you eternal life. And why did He do that? To bring glory to God the Father and God the Son. And God is going to be glorified by you receiving your eternal life, by you continuing in your eternal life. God is going to keep hold of you. We sang this morning, didn't we? When I feel my, uh, fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never um, keep um, my hold, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And what are the stakes? The honor and the glory of God, they're the stakes. He's going to hold you fast. Trust Him. But maybe someone's here and you're, you're not a believer yet. And this kind of talk, well, it worries you a little bit because you think, well, what if I wasn't one of those people? What if the, I wasn't given by the Father to the Son? And I want to encourage you because there is hope for you. You don't actually need to think about that question right now. That, that's not something you need to delve into. Because here's um, Jesus, to prove it to you, here's Jesus in John chapter 6 and verse 37. He says this, All the Father that the Father gives to me, all those people the Father gives to me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So the call to you is not to delve into whether you might or not, might not be one of God's chosen people, but simply to come. And if you come in repentance and put your trust in Jesus Christ, turn away from your old life and say, well, Jesus, I'm sorry, I trust you and your death on my behalf. He will give you eternal life. And then in time, you'll realize that you were given by the Father to the Son. But right now, the call to you is to simply come, no matter how sinful you've been, no matter how foolish you've been, no matter how messed up your life has been. He just says, come. Come and know this eternal life. Come and know this God. So, who gets this eternal life? The people whom the Father has given to the Son in all eternity but it's anyone who will come and trust him. Lastly, what does this eternal life look like? What does this eternal life look like? Because maybe for some people, eternal life, well, that sounds kind of not great, if I'm honest. Maybe for some people, life is difficult, and it's painful, and it's lonely. I don't want this life to go on forever, is perhaps the thought that goes through your head when someone says eternal life. Well, eternal life is not like that. 
Or maybe you know your Bible well and you recognize that eternal life is a thing that starts now and it goes on forever in a new world, a new heavens and a new earth, and, and that new heavens and new earth is free from pain and suffering and sadness and sin and sickness and death. But somehow you still sort of wonder whether it might be a bit dull. After all, forever is a long time, right? Isn't it? Eternity is a long time. Isn't it just going to be a bit boring? And I understand the thought. Um, but the key is to understanding what eternal life really is. John's Gospel's told us lots about eternal life already. It's told us that it's the opposite of perishing, the opposite of eternal death. It's told us that it's entrance into the kingdom of God. It's the satisfaction of living water springing up inside you as you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ, the bread of life, which satisfies. It's life in all its fullness. It's resurrection at the last day. It's all of those things and more. This gospel is full of eternal life and teaching about it. But here we have, in Jesus' prayer, the real heart of the matter. Yes, of course it's true that eternal life goes on forever. But it's not, first of all, about the forever. Look at verse 3, right in the center of our passage. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. That's what it's all about. Eternal life is about knowing God and about knowing him, experiencing him forever. We talked earlier about the extraordinary relationship between the Father and the Son. They've existed in a relationship of love for all eternity. They find joy and delight and satisfaction in each other, and they love to bring glory to each other. And now, and now, through the death of Jesus, we are brought into relationship with this God, with the Father and the Son as the Spirit gives us new life. And we come and know Him. That's eternal life. That's the heart of it. That's what it's about. Look further down in the, in the prayer, and we'll be coming back to this in future weeks, but verse 24, for example, um, Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also, that's us if we're believers, whom you've given me, may be where, with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is God's purpose for us? That we may see the glory of Jesus. And in seeing the glory of Jesus, we also see the glory of the Father. Now, ultimately and perfectly, that happens in eternity. That happens in the new heavens and the new earth because he wants us to be there with him, seeing him face to face. But we see with the eyes of faith now. We see in the word now. That is what eternal life consists of. That is what we're called to. That is what we're here for, to see and to know and to experience the glory of God. And, and there's a wonderful symmetry to this and a wonder to this, isn't there? That the God the Father, God, God, God um, is glorified in this world by dying, by his son dying on a cross to bring eternal life to me. And eternal life for me is to go and to enjoy and to see and to gaze upon his glory and to reflect it, to live it out in the world and to share it. That's what it's about. And this is not knowledge from a distance. Jesus has gone away and perhaps we imagine that we sort of study from a distance like we look up and we see the stars and we, we see how amazing they are and we read about them and we learn that they're these vast hot balls of gas miles away. But it's not like that. Look, at, look again at verse 21 now. Jesus prays that, that his people may be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also, that is, people, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we are in the Son, in the Father. This is abiding in Jesus, abiding in the true vine. This is being amazed by his glory, by being joined to him, by seeing his majesty, experiencing his might, his holiness, and his love. And where are all those things most supremely displayed? Where do we most wonderfully see and understand the glory of God? In the cross. And so the cross never goes away, because there we see God's glory and his love most wonderfully displayed. Christians, this is the eternal life that you have. And to know, to experience the glory of God and to reflect that and live it out and in this world and show others the same. Are you seeking to know more of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it, as you spend time in his word and in prayer? Are we as a church serious about knowing God, about seeing, beholding his glory displayed in Jesus more and more? Is that at the core of what we are? And are we going out and displaying that glory more and more clearly to Morningside, to Edinburgh, to the world around us? Is that what we're doing next weekend? I, I think that it is. Let's continue doing that more and more effectively, because that's what brings glory to God, that you should have eternal life, seeing and knowing him and seeing his glory, to know the glory of the Son of God. Well, that's what the Father has taken delight in in all eternity past, isn't it? And that the Son has taken glory in all eternity past in in delighting in the, the glory of the Father. And if it's good enough for God in all eternity... Is eternal life in a new heavens and earth going to be boring? No, it's not, is it? There's nothing more glorious and wonderful we could ever do than to continue to see and experience and know more and more the glory and the wonder of God. And eternal life is a glorious thing. We need all of eternity to fully see and experience it. It's not boring. It's awesome. Our final word to those who don't know the Lord Jesus yet, if you're opposed to God, if you're not trusting in him so far today, come now and receive this eternal life. Come now and trust in Jesus at the cross. You're not coming to a cool, a cold, distant, harsh, selfish God who demands unreasonable things of you, but rather you're coming to a God who is eternally love, and that, and that love reaches down in the world, and you're coming to a God who glorifies himself in the death of his son on a cross to give eternal life. And that eternal life is offered freely to those who will come and accept it. Come today. What is God's plan for this world? To glorify the Father and the Son through the cross which brings eternal life. And what is eternal life? That we might know the only true God and Jesus whom he sent. Amen.